0: Real excited about this CNFer's promotional support for the Creative Nonfiction Podcast is provided by the Power of Narrative Conference out of Boston, Massachusetts. It's a craft conference focusing on a genre near and dear to my, dare I say, our hearts, narrative journalism, taking place March 22nd and 23rd at Boston University. That's this month. That's three weeks away. I attended a few years ago, and it's an awesome time. Three to 400 journalists from around the world will descend on BU, and you can be one of them. Visit combeyond.bu.edu, navigate to the Power of Narrative conference page, and when you register, use the code NARRATIVE25, and you'll save 25%. This year's keynote speakers include former New York Times editor Dean Baquet, NPR White House correspondent Ozma Khalid, The Washington Post's John Woodrow Cox, former WAPO editor Marty Barron, and the team behind the Boston Globe's Murder in Boston, the untold story of the Charles and Carol Stewart shooting. Not only that, but there will be 15 breakout sessions worth attending, including crafting climate change stories, writing a braided narrative, and the power of empathy in reporting. Again, learn more at combeyond.bu.edu and use that Narrative 25 code to save 25%. Again, Narrative25, save 25% at combeyond.bu.edu Repairing, restoring, reconnecting through true
1: storytelling. I like the sound of that. I know how fucked we are. I don't need to be told again.
0: AC and Evers is
1: the Creative Nonfiction Podcast,
0: a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. Please except my condolences, it's that Atavisian time of the month, so, you know, some spoilers are in order when I speak to Jonah Ogles and the writer at the heart of it, Jessica Camille Aguirre. Freelance journalist based out of Ugh. Her Atavist story, Watch It Burn, is about two scammers, a web of betrayal, and Europe's fraud of the century it deals with carbon credits and how the scammers were able to skim these uh, vats, which are essentially like tax rebate kind of things, into offshore accounts to make millions, nay, billions, perhaps. Uh, it, it sounds dry on the surface, but like any great a story, it's gripping. Climate change noir? Question mark. I'm sorry, I'm the way I am. Be sure to go to brendanomero.com hey, for show notes and to sign up from my monthly rage. Look in the algorithm newsletter. That's a toe-tap and good read. First of the month, no spam. As far as I can tell, you can't beat it. For now, keep the conversation going on Instagram and threads at Creative Nonfiction Podcast. And consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cnfpod. Listen, I get it. Money's tight. And the joy you get from, say, spending $4 on a coffee is often far more gratifying than $4 on your favorite podcast. But if you can, check it out. And if you can't, I get it. I just noticed that there were a handful of reviews and ratings from other countries, like Spain and Canada. And the one rating I got from Ireland was one star. Ireland! My name is Brendan Ryan O'Meara. The name alone should be two stars. Point being, if you have a comment, or a moment to comment, pen a review on Apple Podcast to validate the show for the wayward scene All right, wouldn't it, you know, I, 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 it, wouldn't it be nice if I were famous enough that I didn't have to do all this housekeeping bullshit until that day comes? You're hosed, man. You're hosed. Okay, for starters, we're going to hear from Jonah Ogles, the lead editor of this piece as we talk about structure and uh, writing a lot of bad words, man. All right. Roof.
2: I tend to maybe this is an example of both something I over overuse and something that I come back to a lot, but I I tend to really like chronological stories, yeah. you know, like I, I don't in terms of like an introduction or like the first section of a story, I'm fairly agnostic. You know, I, I like some action there. I, I also am kind of a sucker for like the, the
0: misdirection
2: first section, you know, like Sayward story, however long ago that was a year and a half ago.
0: Punching in just for a moment, that story was titled Fault Lines, and it was the eighth story from 2022 by show friend and out of his editor-in-chief, Sayward Darby, Darby,
1: Darby.
2: Where there's a first section about earthquakes and um, it really has, it has nothing to do with the story, although it ties into it in a really artful, elegant way. But, you know, first section aside, I tend to think with nonfiction, it's rarely a bad call to start at the beginning and, and say what happened from there. You know, yeah. I, I think it's easy, easy for readers to follow. And, and maybe it's just easiest for me to follow. But, you know, there, there are times when I read, read stories that appear in other publications where they, they don't do that and or where the story takes like a a major shift in, in midway through and you know anytime i find something like that i'm like how did they do that you know like what i start looking for how they set it up like what information leads them to that point how the information that they've already revealed plays into what they're about to reveal and and how the pieces sort of speak to each other that way and that's all that's a good challenge and exercise for myself, you know. And say and Sayward and I will do she'll drop a link into Slack and say, like, oh, look at what they did here, you know. And certainly it's something I talk about with friends who are writers, you know, we'll kick stories like that around. You know, there's a the other really common one, which I don't use as often at the Atavus, but I used a lot at outside, was sort of the what I think of as like an A B A B structure. You know, where you're about you sort of have like maybe some action that you're following and in narrative A and then you're giving background and context in narrative B that and the two will eventually sort of meet up. You know, that's a good one. it outside in particular cuz you're often doing stories about like expeditions and you know, you, do, you you need a way to inject information. Yeah. into into this like very like TikTok type of uh you know, single event that's happening. I feel like your your options for structure kind of increase the longer the piece is, you know, because when you're writing like a three thousand word, four thousand word story, you just don't, you can't, like you can you can do things that are interesting, but you have to tell the story, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you've got to present the information, um, and usually that's that's done pretty straightforwardly, but when you get to the stories that The Atavist publishes, or you know, the New Yorker's longer stories, or um, certainly a book, then then you can do other things with it.
0: And there are any number of models you can look to, be it you know, feature films or pot you know, good narrative podcasts, even just like This American Life or something, or or in in fiction, mm-hmm. are are there areas where you look to, or or even maybe movies that you've seen you're like i really like that structure i maybe i could uh you know we can we can toy around with that with the right story that comes across our transom
2: yeah yeah i do i mean i i don't have a ton of time to watch movies anymore right. i watch i watch movies in like 20 minute uh clips but fiction i try to that's sort of become my like wind down thing in the, in the mm-hmm. evenings And that I try to, to steal stuff where I can, you know, like I bet I went on this big Mick Heron kick, um, who writes the slow horses spy novels. And he, he does this thing where like he'll be in a scene and you're moving along. And then the characters will like, one of the characters will ask a question that the reader has been you know, it's sort of been simmering away somewhere in the reader's mind. And he'll ask the question, and I really want to know the answer. And that question is the end of his section. And then then he just jumps forward without giving you the answer into another scene where the answer will then be revealed at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, maybe maybe anyone listening to this is like, well, duh, that's an obvious way to like, tease some tension into a story but it really propels me as a reader you know and and i think in this story you know we have some moments that are similar to that where we we reach a point and where the section ends with kind of this half revelation but you have to keep reading in order to find out the full picture Mm.
0: Yeah, so with, with uh, Jessica's story, you know what what was it about this thing that 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 struck you and, and lent itself to the that degree of tension and release? Tension and release.
2: She has great material, you know, and she has a ton of it in the story. Um, you know, the dra- the initial draft was much longer, but still just kind of fascinating to read. Um, because I I hadn't followed this carbon scam thing when it when it first happened, however long ago, um, so that she had lots of good stuff to work with, and she's also just a really great writer, so there a lot of it was already there. You know, she had a good sense of how to. How to set things up and and how to keep readers moving. I mean, the thing the thing that really developed for us in, in as this draft moved through the editing process was this betrayal between you know there's a ring of carbon scammers and uh, they're all kind of working against each other in various ways, but that but that's not immediately clear to maybe any of them. So including, I mean, there were things like late in the fact check process, like that were happening yesterday that we were still sort of unpacking because people revealed new information, you know? So when you have, when you have something like that, where one character knows this, but the other main character doesn't, and the other main character may know this other thing that the first one doesn't. And that, that opens the door to sort of, those moments that I was talking about where you, where you reveal something a little bit and, and then sort of draw the the complete picture later in the piece.
0: Yeah. It's um lately, I, I was thinking about the, this notion of, and it came to me by watching, you know, old Bob Ross painting joy of painting episodes of this idea of like layering paints, you know, building, you know, you set that background up and then, you're always just mixing colors, moving more, more and more through the foreground, and it's like, you know, teasing out that various information because, like, you know, Jessica knows certain things, and you know these characters obviously know things in the story, but it's up to her to like definitely lay it out and layer it in a sequential enough way where, you, uh, where the the reader doesn't know, even though ever, all the principals know. So it's like that slow teasing out of that information is a really deft thing and skilled thing to do for a writer and, and an editor to handle.
2: Yeah. And it, and it, you know, it takes some trial and error usually and that's where I think gut comes into it. You know, you just look at it and see, is this working? Should we reveal less? Should we reveal more? Um, but in, in Jessica's story, you know, there were, there are a few shifts like that that happen where you sort of think, you know what the story is going to be about, and then there's this twist where you think like, "Oh, maybe I was wrong." And and George Saunders talks about that when he in you know his various writings about how to craft a short story. You know, it's sort of like setting reader expectations up and then contradicting them in, in an interesting way, and how how that. How that makes for a a good reading experience for the reader. and I think I think Jessica was able to do that pretty artfully in in quite a few places in this story.
0: yeah, and I think what struck struck me about her story as well was some some of the the electricity of her writing too, which this story could very well have just been kind of a not a like like in The New Yorker it would just be like a really. Well written, well informed piece throughout with like say no exclamation points or stuff of that uh-huh. stuff of that nature. Yes. Like was like right in the third graph of the story, you know, as she's kind of sketching out Gustav Daphne's uh, as a, as a as a person, you know, he, you know. There's just this one passage where she's like, he would find the right people and negotiate the right conditions. He had to smoke. He loved to smoke he loved it more than anything except for women he loved women and smoking yeah. and art and shopping and th- and that's something you i you, do, you don't that's a charge you don't necessarily see in a in a in a feature of this nature
2: yes yes i know I, and i mean jessica is a writer that like i wanted i've been trying to work on a story with her for i don't know 8 10 years maybe i mean when i was when i was at outside and trying to break into editing features uh she was one of the writers i reached out to because i thought she was so good and it's like hey let's find something and we never did it outside and then you know a a couple of years ago uh we finally maybe even longer it might have been three years ago at the atavist we finally found this story and I was just thrilled that it worked out because she is so good you know like that's there' there are editors in the world who are probably fully capable of like getting a draft that's uh maybe just doesn't have a, a lot of that muscle to it the writing and and injecting it in there I'm not probably that person you know like i I'm not that good of a writer uh so to work with someone like, jessica who just has it and has the talent for it and is so attentive to the words on the page i mean it's just it's such a luxury for me as an editor
0: and this kind of a slight pivot but what would you say is the most maybe fully formed piece that you've received uh at at your time at the atavist
2: yeah, well, Bill Donahue's stories are the ones that immediately come to mind. Mm-hmm. You know, he just he's so good and those drafts were just so clean when they came in and they really didn't require much. Um, Bob Colker's piece was another one that just, you know, came in and didn't didn't need a ton of work because he'd spent so much time either thinking about it or it just was one of those like flash of lightning moments for him where it just came out yeah. kind of the way it needed to be. Um, So those, those ones come to mind. I mean, this story is not far off, you know, the, 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 I alluded to it earlier, but the big thing that happened in this story is that she turned in a draft that was mostly about Gustav Daphne and um, his escape from uh, the justice system that was trying to lock him up for this carbon scam. But within that, there was this this notion of betrayal uh, that you know there'd been there'd been some double crossing going on with some of the guys that he worked with, and at the time we didn't know if we could get to Gregory Zowie, the the other main character in this piece, but we <laughs> she reached out. And he agreed to talk, and so she flew to France and met him. And And then all of a sudden, like, the whole story shifted, you know, just because all of a sudden this avenue of reporting that she had tried before and he wasn't interested, but for whatever reason she caught him at the right moment, and then it just opens up this this completely new narrative to explore, and it really... I mean, it's that's exciting for me. I hope she was excited by it and not just like daunted at the fact that she had to rewrite the story. <laughs> but for me, it was exciting because here's this new thing that hasn't been reported, even though the carbon scam has been pretty thoroughly covered in Europe. Um, there was this aspect to it that nobody had really gotten into. And we had this really
0: meaty piece on our hands when you talk about you know Bill Donahue or Bob Coker and, and Jessica's piece here like i think what they the reporters and the writers at the heart of these stories are what they have in common is a lot of experience and millions of words written and i don't think that's something that can be discounted in this work it's just you kind of have to blubber your way through probably just a lot of features to get to that level of skill where it does somewhat feel like a guitar virtuoso, so we can kind of just pick up anything and kind of like, oh, and it starts to sound wonderful no matter what instrument they're using. And I, I think that's, uh, I don't know, just something to underscore. I think is just like it takes a long time to get good at these stories.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and the the music analogy is a good one. You know, you don't you don't get good at an instrument. Uh, the first time you pick it up you you get good by like playing a lot of wrong notes and and over time you learn which ones are the right ones and the patterns that are there and and how to when to play and how to play and it's the same deal in writing you know you you're going to write a lot of bad words before you start recognizing what is good and and what works and and you're able to reach into the toolbox of your experience and draw out the right, the right tool for that particular moment or piece of writing.
0: Yeah, And that kind of, to bring it full circle, kind of gets to the structure question. There are certain things that are in music somewhat formulaic, but within those mm-hmm. boundaries, you can make a really rich portrait, you know, be it, you know, chorus, uh, verse, chorus, verse, bridge. Well, you know, that whole yeah. thing is still like, it's unique to you, you know it when you hear it. But how many hundreds of songs have you heard follow that same formula? But they all sound uh, unique to them in a lot, in a lot of ways. Not every way, but in a lot of ways. So yeah, yeah.
2: yep, yep. That's ex- that's exactly right. And she in this story, I mean, it is sort of. Um, I guess it's not necessarily told chronologically, but you know this this it's in this case, it's more about the revelation of information. You know, it's when, when you're going to deploy that stuff. And, and so, you know, she did a a nice job of, of finding a way to like, get you invested in these characters, first of all, and then to explain some stuff that honestly is like incredibly difficult to explain that fraud and carbon markets and, you know, some really wonky bureaucratic stuff. Um, But, but, Get just the right amount of that, so that readers aren't lost, and put it in the right place, so that it doesn't disrupt the narrative. So that we can keep going with these the sense of betrayal and and who knew what when and and how they were they were all manipulating each other.
0: Well, fantastic. Well, Joan, it's always great talking to you about uh, you know your side of the table on these stories, and uh, you know this was this was really rich to get your your insight. So th- thank you very much, and we're gonna go kick it over to Jessica now. Thank you. Always a pleasure. That was cool, man. All right, Jessica. She's at Jessica Aguirre on Instagram and threads. That Aguirre part is A G U I R R E. Dude. She's a writer and magazine journal whose work focuses on climate change and extremes. Her work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Vanity Fair, N Plus One, and Hoppe's. She's working on a book about biosphere, too. I don't know what that is. And how creating or uh, recreating nature shaped our understanding of the planet. Will I edit out that verbal snafu? You bet I won't. Her website is com. It's so spare. I love it. I love it. We talk about voice here, access and trust, rejection, 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 and online nothing burgers. Mmm. I like the sound of that. Here's Jessica. <sighs> well, that's
1: the hope. That would be great if that were the case. <laughs> right. The internet still exists in five years.
0: <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah, there might be some central hub that's found some dry land in like Iowa. And, they, and, that, and that's where all the internet servers will be.
1: But none of the people. No. no, like, no let's just be, be real. Yeah. What are we going to save? Exactly.
0: It'll just be some uh, blight resistant corn and internet servers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fantastic. Well, this is this is uh, really happy we're able to do this and um, uh, talk about your out of his story and everything. and I, I think that a, a good jumping off point might just be to uh, you know how you came across the story because it's uh, for, after talking to Jonah, it's something that's been on your plate for quite a while.
1: Yeah, I've been working on the story for, for a really long time, maybe longer than I've worked on any other single article. To be perfectly honest, I don't actually remember exactly how I first caught wind of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> that long ago.
0: It's like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> that long ago.
1: Yeah. Um, but I will say that I generally write about uh, environmental issues. But my goal is often to write stories that appeal to people who are not necessarily going to be drawn to an environmental story. And so I was kind of or I've always been kind of on the prowl for stories that are tangentially about the environment or climate change, but not necessarily like explicitly so. Um, And this is such a wild story. And, you know, so many superlatives could be used to describe it. The like central narrative is really compelling in itself. Um, But at the same time, it is also about, uh, this kind of wonky set of policies and kind of market mechanisms that were used to try and draw down carbon emissions and save the planet. So, you know, put together a really great story with these kind of existential issues. And for me, that that's a really, you know, a really compelling starting point.
0: Yeah. And a moment ago, you said that, uh, you know, it, it can be sometimes or I'm inferring this that environmental stories can be something of a of a tough selling to get people to buy in and read a long story that has like environmental context to it. Uh, so and you've been doing this for a, a while with that. So uh, why do you think that is that it is uh, a challenge to write a, like a really good cracking environmental story?
1: I think that it's really easy for a lot of environmental stories to become a little luxury and i think that readers anticipate that. Mm. So there's this sense of like i know how fucked we are. I don't need to be told <laughs> again. Um and in this kind of like, you know, pedantic kind of way as well. Um and so i think that and and there is i mean there's so much really incredible environmental journalism out there. Um so not to diminish the great work that's being done. But I do think that, you know, much of particularly like breaking news or, or day-to-day news um, falls into certain kinds of tropes about, you know, what what we should be thinking or how we should be acting about the environment. And I think that what is interesting for me is like to try to fight, fight back against that um, so that we continue engaging intellectually with <laughs> with the way that we're all fucked.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I guess the the Trojan horse of it all is like finding really good characters at the center of it, because then you can are, are hitch this story to the wagon of like uh, uh, Gustav, Daphne, and uh, his rival.
1: Yeah, so I mean, uh, the story is essentially about the rise of um, the biggest carbon trading heist in history, uh, the people who conceived of and executed it and the relationship their relationships to each other and the various ways in which they you know kind of stabbed each other in the back and um, uh, the, the levels of duplicity and and kind of mind games that went into what they were doing and so so it's kind of you know it's a in some ways like a classic like heist story or scam story but it also follows very closely the two main characters who are, who are at the center of the story, who are very, very different people. And that's what I meant with a, you know, superlatives when we were talking earlier, you know, when you talk about the biggest carbon trading scam in history, like that in and of itself is, you know, an interesting thing to be unpacked, I would say Um, just the amount of like financial intrigue and the number of people who got sucked into it. I mean, this was a, it was a scam that took place on, on a, you know, a nascent uh, carbon carbon credit market in Europe. And, um, you know, so the market essentially launched and a couple of months into it, uh, the the scam started taking place and it, and it really concentrated, like the primary activity was concentrated over the course of, of, I would say, like six months during which, depending on who you ask, between five and 10 billion euros was stolen. You know, so in, inevitably in a scam of that size and that magnitude, there are a huge number of people that were that were sucked into it, including, you know, bankers at some of the uh, most established institutions in Europe who, you know, arguably knowingly were taking part as well as all of these different kind of established crime rings across Europe, primarily in France and the UK, and, you know, a couple of newcomers as well. And so, you know, uh, that, you know, in and of itself is really interesting. It's interesting in the ways in which the market was, Influenced by this. I mean, there was a certain point at which authorities in Europe estimated that 90% of the carbon market was fraudulent. Um, So it was an entire market that was operating on the premise of, you know, ripping off the system. So, you know, that is inevitably interesting. But I also got very lucky in the course of reporting and found these two characters who were, uh, you know, had very, very different profiles, uh, particularly in the media, one of whom was credited with being kind of the mastermind or the brain behind the operation, and the other one who had this reputation as this, you know, kind of charismatic playboy. And they hadn't really been connected in the media up until uh, the point in which I started digging into their relationship Um, and then it turned out that they had quite a complicated one. And so that ended up becoming one of the backbones of the story.
0: And describe for people, the nature of this, uh, scam with the carbon credits and vats and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, like it's it's kind of complicated and also uh, it's very simple too. So essentially, um, Europe has something called a value-added tax. It's basically a sales tax, and it's levied at every point of purchase. Um, and then essentially, the government reimburses what has been paid if you are making a product, right? And you like buy something, you know, something that you need to make your product, and then you sell it on. Um, you are going to be reimbursed whatever you you paid for the, you know, for the material that you needed. And then you'll, you know, get money for what you what you sell. And I mean, I think the important thing to know about it is, is that at the end of the day, the government is expecting you to act as a tax collector and to give that money to the government and that you're also getting reimbursed for uh, tax that you paid that, that, you know, you shouldn't pay according to the system. And so there are a lot of opportunities for collecting tax and then disappearing, or you know creating these what authorities call carousels, where you create like multiple entities um, that are paying this tax to each other. Well, <laughs> it is quite complicated. There's also like <laughs> a so there's a cross border. If you import across border, then you don't have to pay the tax. Um, but you know the way that it worked at the end of the day was that there were all of these companies in Europe that were able to, mostly fake companies, that were able to, to apply for a reimbursement or to ask for a reimbursement from the government um, and then never pay the tax that they, that they owed. Um, and so they were able to pocket all this money that was essentially paid out of the coffers of European governments. And so what they were essentially stealing was you know, the money paid by taxpayers at the end of the day so money that should have been going to public institutions schools building roads that kind of thing were instead going you know being funneled into offshore accounts in Hong Kong and Cyprus and then disappearing into the pockets of of the guys who who set up these these systems what they experienced and what was so unique about the carbon market was that they had these kinds of scams had existed before um, with these um, uh, primarily cell phones because they're small and they're easy to move around. Um, but what was unique about this, the carbon market is that the carbon credits were virtual, so they could be moved around with the click of a button. So one of the scammers told me, for example, that it was um, it was easier than sending an email. They essentially just sat at computers and, and, you know, moved their product or moved these carbon credits from one company to another and applied for reimbursement at every step. And so they were just raking in cash and all they had to do was kind of set up these accounts online.
0: Yeah, that's a that line struck me how to them it was like easier than sending an email and you're like, holy shit, they're just like raking, raking it in, just sitting there (laughs) click of a mouse and like, wow, this is almost too easy too good to be true <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah and it was for a while you know there was just an enormous amount of money made in a really short period of time and that led to um a lot of a lot of conflict among the people who were who were executing uh the fraud so a lot of the the different rings were um, loosely related, or they were competitors. People who knew each other from, you know, other illegal operations, and so there was a lot of competition and a lot of. Um, it turned out to be, uh, in the end, uh, quite violent as well. Not necessarily the involving the people who I had profiled, but um, one of the other people who was convicted in a similar um, in a similar case. Uh, was also convicted of a kidnapping and convicted of or suspected of carrying out two murders as well. So, um, you know, the nature of enormous amount of money uh, floating around and therefore the taking, I think, lends itself to uh, duplicity and uh, betrayal and suspicion.
0: And as you're reporting out the piece and in gathering information and trying to find people central to the story, you know what did you find that were maybe some unique challenges to you uh, as you were gathering your information to uh, spin this yarn?
1: The biggest challenge was getting access. Yeah. So getting um, people to speak with me. And as I mentioned before, the two main kind of nodes of these scams were the UK and France. And when I first started reporting the story, I was very focused on the UK and trying to get people who had run the scam there to talk to me. And I was able to to, um, obtain a huge number of legal legal documents uh, from a bunch of different cases across Europe And I was in touch with the German prosecutor's office and, um, and where, you know, a lot of the, the UK rings operated. And it was, it was just a grind, you know, trying to access people, trying to contact people who don't want to be talked to and who don't want to be accessed. And so, you know, I was putting in months of, of you know, calling people who I knew were tangentially related or, you know, who, according to some business documents from two decades ago, had worked with one of the people at some point in the past and trying to get through to their new, you know, mechanic shop somewhere in England. Um, I was reaching out to people who I knew were connected to some of the people I wanted to talk to on Facebook. Um, so it was just like really casting the net incredibly wide. Um, And then I expanded my focus even further. And um, after months and months and months and months, I finally uh, got through to one person who didn't end up being in the piece at all, uh, but who had worked on this scam as one of the, the scammers and who lived in Tel Aviv and who could start pointing me in the right direction in terms of people I could be in touch with. Uh and so that was that was a big breakthrough that happened. And it only happened, you know, months into months into the reporting process. So I was able to start gathering documents um and talking to experts and that kind of thing quite early on, obviously. But the big breakthrough was finally getting someone to talk to me. And then and then, you know, months after that, I finally got uh the person who ended up being the main character in the piece, someone named uh well his name is not is not Gustav Daphne, but I gave him the pseudonym of Gustav Daphne on his request. Um, I ended up getting in touch with him months and months after that. So the, and that was probably arguably the the biggest break in the story. And it took, but it took quite a long time to get there. I should also just say that uh, the reporting process was way late as well because of the pandemic. So he is living in Tel Aviv and still is in Tel Aviv. And Israel had quite. Uh, restrictive travel measures in place during the pandemic. So that was kind of put on on pause for a couple of years.
0: Yeah, it feels like you're like Jason Bourne or something like we you're reporting on this story, like kind of hopping, hopping borders, going going everywhere. There's almost a, a spy <laughs> quality to it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really tough to, to track everyone down and to unravel their stories. I think that Many of the people who who operated in these rings, particularly in France, ended up being profiled to one degree or another in the French media at some point, and they had varying degrees of openness with regard to that. But to the extent that any of them agreed to being profiled or appearing in the media, it was kind of with the expectation that they would be in control of the narrative as well. Um, And I think that one thing that was important for many of them was this was presenting like a sense of exceptionalism and the way that their role in the in the scam was really, you know, the fulcrum of everything. And when I went into the story and realized that there had been this this deep betrayal between two of the main characters and when it became clear that that was going to be kind of the main nexus of the story. Um, and that the two, these two characters would then be kind of put in opposition with each other. Uh, I think that was very much a departure from the way in which the story had been presented previously, particularly in the French media.
0: And uh, something that underscores everything that you're talking about, how long the process took to even get access, let alone synthesizing all the information into uh, a story, is how patient... Uh, you had to be in the instance of this story, but the patience that it often takes to write narrative journalism in general, just because a lot of this stuff takes so much time and you might have to wait months or years to garner trust or access or get a certain document. So, you know, for you, how have you cultivated that sense of patience to be able to execute stories of this nature?
1: Well, I think that there's, for me, you know, especially with a story like this, where you have like multiple levels of really complicated stuff, it's clear that you have to get a human narrative or else you can't really tell the story in a way that's going to, to have any kind of impact. And getting that, it's in some ways, it's the simplest thing, but getting to that place where you can say, okay, I, I've got this like quite simple, you know, human story at the center of all of, all of these, you know, kind of complicated financial systems. I guess I would just say like on a, on a practical level that this has been a story that I have been pursuing for a really long time, but not to the exclusion of other work. Mm -hmm. Um, so in that sense, like I, I knew particularly during the pandemic, I knew that there were going to be long pauses in this, in this reporting process. And so, um, it's something that's kind of run in parallel to, you know, many other projects that I pursued at the same time. Yeah, in, uh, in
0: talking with Jonah too, he he was, he, he he suggested I talk to you about like wading through, uh, the bluster and the narcissism <laughs> at the core of the, your you know your two central figures and how to almost decode what they were what they were saying to get to the you know the crux of it, get to the truth. So, what was that experience like uh, navigating your conversations with them?
1: One of the, there's this kind of classic in um, narrative journalism, long-form journalism called The Journalist and the Murderer by Janet Malcolm. I'm sure you've heard of it, if not read it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the whole, it, it appeared initially in as a series in The New Yorker. And um, it was about this case of a man who had been convicted of murdering his wife and children and the journalist who was given unprecedented access to him. Sidebar.
0: The journalist at the center of that is Joe McGinnis, the late Joe McGinnis, author of Fatal Vision, uh, among many other books, uh, one of which was The Big Horse, which was a comp title for me for my first uh, two books, one of which was published. And I remember being a 28-year-old insecure writer. If you think I'm insecure now, Fifteen years ago, anyway, I was able to meet Joe at my friend and mentor's house in Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, Madeline Blaze, and uh, he offered to read some of my pages from my MFA manuscript. It was a horse racing thing. I was really desperate to get it published. Uh, probably will never see the light of day, but that's a that that's a good thing. Uh, but anyway, he had uh, he had offered to read some pages, and at that point, you're always hoping that, you know, they're going to be smitten with your prose and stuff of that nature. I sent him physical copies of the self-addressed stamped envelope and apparently got lost in the mail. Tracked him down email-wise, and uh, he wrote back. He, he was like, "I, you know, you apologize for that, getting lost in the mail. And he was like, as I recall, what I said was that while the pages showed a laudable amount of tight-focus reporting, And while the writing was at least not a detriment, there seemed an underlying absence of narrative storyline. I think I also said that I might have been hypersensitive to this because some reviewers said much the same about The Big Horse. In any event, I'm quite sure my bottom line was, profiles are for magazines or newspapers. Books have to tell a story with a beginning, middle, and end. And I think I remember being so obsessed with him saying that the writing was at the least not a detriment and that was like a dagger in my heart maybe i shouldn't be i I was overly sensitive then i'm reading him now i'm like oh yeah it's not so bad but at the time oh woof
1: um, to write his, his story with a kind of expectation that the journalist was going to write from the perspective and point of view of the, of the person who was eventually co- convicted of this murder. And over the course of the case, the journalist ended up changing his mind and deciding, no, he didn't, he actually believed that this person who was eventually convicted for murder did in fact murder his wife and children. And so he ended up writing this, this, um, you know, piece that that to the subject of the piece felt like a deep betrayal because the subject had expected. So yeah, so the so the the subject ended up feeling like um, he had been betrayed by this journalist because he had expected the journalist to present his his side of the story. Um, and it was a really extreme case. What Janet Malcolm got into in her articles about it were all of these letters that the journalist sent to the convicted murderer in prison kind of, um, you know, talking about how close their relationship was. And and it gave very much the impression of, of camaraderie and of, um, you know, kinship between them um, in this way that felt, you know, incredibly duplicitous when you then read the, the work of the journalist. And at some point, the journalist said, well, you know, there's no way that I could have gotten the story that I needed to get if I had been forthcoming about where I was coming from. Mm -hmm. Um, and in particular in a, you know, in a previous book that he had written, he'd written this kind of insider view on the Nixon campaign. And he said, well, if I had told them that I was a Democrat, they would never have let me in. (laughs) Um, and, and I think that it's, it's this really strange thing to have, to be in a journalist's shoes where you are, you wish to form a relationship with your subject, you want to gain their trust. But I think the sense of um, what I think the, the murderer ended up describing as like soul murder, you mm-hmm. know, this betrayal that had been, um, you know, undertaken by the journalist. Uh, I think that there has to be a way to avoid that as well. So I do try to go into these kinds of conversations being really clear and upfront about what it is that I want to do. And then, of course, I'm still there as a journalist who wants to get the story. You know, so I have to recognize the ways in which I'm engaging in the conversation in the way that I think, you know, will behoove me while at the same time i'm trying to like be guided by this like higher ethic of like transparency and and accountability in terms of of you know never promising something that i'm not going to deliver
0: yeah it's it's crazy cuz if you if your reporting takes you in a direction of you know a, a factual direction but it might not be flattering to your central figures and you bring that up it's like oh is this going to be the thing that they totally withdraw altogether and then you lose it and all like all that work. Or do you like, you know, as like uh, McGinnis yeah. does, you know, put it, you know, just kind of uh, put on a mask and, and then pull the rug out from under them when it's too late for them to have any agency. It's uh,
1: <laughs> it's really hard.
0: Yeah. yeah,
1: absolutely. And there were a couple of times during the reporting process where it seemed as though everything was going to fall apart—that you know the people, particularly the two main characters—you know they are just navigating those relationships—is challenging, and and um, and yeah, there were definitely definitely a few crises. So it's not you know it's not easy. I think that especially when you're a journalist and you're out there, you're out in the field. I mean, in in, in these cases, I traveled to Tel Aviv and to Paris to talk to these guys. Uh, you know so I'm I'm obviously a cognizant of of you know the the atavist and the resources being put into my being able to be there and the expectation that I can then deliver in the end and so you know, <laughs> when something seems to be on the cusp of falling apart it's it's um, it's very anxiety producing to say the least yeah
0: yeah and speaking of like you know delivering on, on a pitch uh, of that nature. I was helping uh, someone who listens to the show and who wants to, you know, pitch the atavist. And since I speak with Jonah and Sayward so much, they shared their, you know, pitch with me and I was just helping them through just kind of, just kind of coaching them be like, these are kind of the things that they typically look for. And, uh, you know, at, in a moment, a moment in the pitch, it was like, I, I hope to be able to find these people. I'm like, Hope is where queries go to die. Like there is, (laughs) uh, like you you can't hope to get access to certain documents or certain people. Like you need to have like concrete proof that you do. And um, so, like for you, what was how did you put a a stake through the heart of hope and get your query across the door?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I think that I did that with um, the documents. I did obtain documents that no one else had had at that point. And so in that sense, I was able to say confidently that I could deliver something that no one else could have done up until that point. I did not at that, at the point that I pitched the story, I didn't have the two main characters lined up yet. Because as I said, when I started out, my intention was to focus on a different, like a different set of, of, uh, crime rings. In general, I don't pitch until I have Guaranteed access to whatever it is that I think is going to be like the central spine of the story. And, you know, that access may come in different forms Uh, on a story like this. Of course, it's ideal to be able to speak to the person. But in some cases, you know, the person who committed a crime is not going to want to talk. Um, and so in that case, you have to have other, you know, other avenues and other ways of, of getting the information, being able to flesh out a a complete story. I did at the point of pitch feel like I had the confidence to say that I could, you know, put forward information that no one else had and spin like a real yarn, um, which, you know, is kind of like the, the test for me of whether or not I have the story is whether I can tell a story that isn't going to be overwhelmed by the technical details of it. But, you know, I was fortunate enough to, and this is one of the great things I found of, of working with atavists is, is there was an incredible amount of, of, you know, support and encouragement to to keep going. You know, my inclination is to like report something to death, <laughs> and at a certain point, you have to sit down and write. But I also think that there were multiple points during this reporting process that were um, that benefited greatly from Sayward and Jonah both being like, "Well, you know, if, if you want to do this next thing, go ahead." And so that was, you know, that was incredibly helpful and allowed me then to to be able to get a story that, in the end, I think, you know, was was much stronger than than what I had pitched initially.
0: Now, people like yourself who are seasoned at this do get uh understand the, the amount of legwork that even goes into a, a pitch. And I know mistakes I've made in the past. I mean m- my batting average for landing p- pitches of this nature is uh dismally low and it, it's and it's I think a lot owed owed a lot to not doing quite enough legwork Ahead or underestimating the amount of legwork that goes into really being able to say this is this is more or less the trajectory of this, and then being able to uh, to deliver on that. So, uh, you know, for you, like, what you know, what is the the nature of how much work goes into just you know selling the idea?
1: Yeah, that's a really this is a crucial question, especially for freelancers, because all of that work is work that you're performing without pay You're right right it's speculative yeah. work you have no idea where it's gonna go will it land will it become anything and um and you know it's hard to hype yourself up to do it it's especially if it's tough and you have to you know call people who don't want to be talked to or try to chase people down who don't want to be found you have to have a, like i don't know a wild amount of of delusion i think to to, yeah. to do it <laughs> Um, but, um, I have also been in a situation where, um, I sold a big, like a big feature to a big print magazine and then, um, had to retract that story on, it was a kind of a, like very different circumstances, but essentially what ended up happening was, is that one, the family, one of the main characters, uh, implored me not to write about them and gave me a, you know, some reasons why. Mm. Um, and so out of respect to them, I decided to pull it and that is an incredibly crummy situation to be in. <laughs> Joe um, McGinnis
0: would not have done that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I know. But I mean, this goes back to like, what are the, like, how do you perform this job ethically? Right. This job that feels <laughs> like there's so much, I don't know, like, you present a different face to different, you know, all these different people, there's so many different demands on you. And they're so different depending on what role you're playing in any given moment. You know, you're the reporter in one moment, you're the writer in the next. And those roles feel almost like diametrically opposed sometimes. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, obviously like, Perhaps naive as it is, one of the reasons I do this work is because I feel like it is, um, you know, ethical or it can be ethical work. Um, And so I try to do it in a way that that seems to like fall in line with some ethical framework. You know, but back to your initial question of like, how much work do you put in? I think that that, you know, had I done just a little bit more on that pitch, I would have known, you know, that I would have been putting myself into a situation that I didn't want to be in. Um, And so in that sense, I think that like you've got to report to the point at which you can say you have to like be able to imagine like you have the commission, right? Like that's that's where you have to be with your pitch is like I could get this assigned by the biggest magazine ever today with this pitch and I could do it exactly the way I think it should be done. Mm. Um, And until you're at that moment, it's not worth pitching. And it's sometimes really hard to get there. But I think that the trade off is, is that if you are at that place with a pitch, the likelihood that you'll get that pitch landed somewhere is pretty good. Not that I'm saying it's easy out there, especially (laughs) right now. Um, and part of like my, uh, like hype project for this out of this piece was like, I'm going to, you know, post all of the rejections that I got on this story before I actually landed it, you know, like every story that I go and pitch is going to get a couple of rejections before it lands. And I think that's just part of, you know, part of being a freelancer and that has to be also kind of, you know, brought into the calculus and it's just part for the course. So, you know, if you're ready to, to, you know, be at a place where you could, you know, get the commission right now and, and like hit the ground running. um, And you're also ready to, to like be, you know, be the door-to-door salesperson on it, you know, knocking every door until you found a spot for it. I think like that to me is the combination of things that can like <laughs> achieve like some degree of, I don't know, sustainability as a career path in this industry. Um, <laughs> but like, don't quote me on that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh,
0: with respect to rejection in the the pitch in industrial complex it, it how do you uh how did you over time just kind of develop the the muscle or even the the scars to you know, to withstand the inevitable rejection until you get it to a place where it lands and like when it lands you're like why you know what this this isn't so bad I kind of this might have been where it was supposed to be all along
1: <laughs> yeah Oh, God. I mean, your rejections used to just totally uh, like crush me, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I remember. And what's interesting is, is that I think that, you know, I worked as a as a staff uh, reporter for a long time before I went freelance. And um, funnily enough, I this out of a story was one of the first freelance like big freelance features that I landed That's how long ago (laughs) it was. But, you know, I do remember way, way back, um, you know, pitching these these little online nothing, nothing burgers, you know, and getting a pass or getting I mean, if you're you're lucky if you get a pass, you know. Most of the time, you get silence. That's the, That's worst. the worst. That is the worst. That's the worst. That's yep. the worst. So you know, and uh, that, you know, the holding out hope, and and you know, weeks and weeks go by, and it's, it's something timely, and then it's not relevant anymore. It's just the worst. So you know, once I started getting passes, that was a good thing. But I do remember that that you know, I would just be just like put my heart and soul into something, and and then not you know, it wouldn't get it wouldn't get sold, it wouldn't get picked up, and and I think that that what really helped me were a couple of things, just hearing these things. I didn't take them to heart. (laughs) I should have, I didn't take them to heart, but like seeing your freelance career as a business, you know, if I saw my freelance career as a business, I'd be making very different choices and hopefully making more money. But it was helpful to hear that, you know, to like have that notion, um, introduced to me and to say like, okay, you know, it's not, it's not like your, your like soul and life it's it's your work and uh, you know a business and 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 so the, you know a degree of like depersonalization is helpful i also encountered you know this kind of like i'm going to rack up this many rejections type of approach which is also kind of a nice way to think about it like mm-hmm. you know what am i what am i aiming for Am I aiming to land pitches or am i like gonna aim for rejections and if rejection is are your goal it makes it much easier to go out and get them um you know, I'm not saying that rejection should be the goal, but like, you know, being able to say, like, I am proud of myself for having put myself forward in this way to get the rejection rather than because I think that like the fear is, is that the um or like the worst case scenario is that the fear of rejection stops you from putting yourself out there and yeah. and chasing the story. <clears throat> um And that's the worst outcome, right? Like, what's the worst outcome being rejected? No, it's not doing it to begin with.
0: Yeah, exactly. A, a, a metaphor I've used in the past is like, can you imagine like a giant maple tree and like every year it's just like, I'm going to put out one seed and I'm going to see if this one is going <laughs> to fly away and take root somewhere and grow to be another mighty maple tree. Well, the yeah. fact is they, they throw out thousands of seeds and maybe exactly. two of them take root. And <laughs> exactly. then you hope a landscaper doesn't pick out the seedling. So it's like, they with no kill fee. So... <laughs> And so that's the idea of the, of just blasting them out there, and not indiscriminately like a tree would, but it's it's that idea of it, it is a numbers game, and the more you can get them out there, the better chance you have, and then the body of work grows, your authority grows, and then maybe you can be more targeted because your reputation is now standing on a foundation of a body of work.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, of course, like once you start... I mean, at least for me, there were a couple of assignments that I got that, that ended up, you know, becoming really pivotal in terms of having a calling card to take to other editors and saying, like, look, I can deliver.
0: Yeah, I, I love your idea of just the the callous, not the callousness, but building up that rejection callous and, uh, you know, playing playing that numbers game and the batting average of it. Like, I think if if more people knew what the batting average was, which might be like 10%, mm-hmm. probably less it's uh i think people might be more willing to to pitch more you know it's not like a 50-50 thing it truly is like a low batting average even for people who are well established
1: yeah and and also i think it changes your relationship to every story i mean i think that like like the the walnut seedling like you know you don't if you put out one and you, you then you like it encompasses all of your hopes and dreams and everything hinges on it and it, you know it reflects like your self-worth in the world Whereas if you put out like ten or fifteen, then not so much. Um, so you know, I think that that's that's also a good a good reason to to put out more. And I think that that it also allows you to see, you know, if you're if you're you know if you keep putting out pitches, you can also turn a more critical eye and turn an editor's eye to your own work more easily, um, which is also a really important component to to landing pitches. I think you know, I think we. Um, The pitches that fail often revolve around um, like they want to be reported, but they still revolve around like the reporter subjectivity in a way that's like not not described. You know, it's like this is so interesting, but it's just really interesting without describing like what is interesting? What is Mm -hmm. like what is the unique and and compelling factor about it? And so, you know, and that I think is, is a reflection of like the attachment that we personally feel to our story ideas. Whereas if you can kind of like hack away that attachment and try to turn a critical eye to it, then you can see where those flaws are and then, and then flesh them out in a way that will make them more compelling pitches.
0: Going back a a few minutes ago in our conversation too, about, about this idea of like, uh, of, of pitching, there's also the idea of, you know, you need to kind of recruit people to be a part of your story and you know you're selling them on the idea that maybe you can land the story and sometimes that story never never lands anywhere so you've like spoken to this person maybe gotten their hopes up that they're gonna have a profile written about them or they're gonna be a Mm -hmm. central part and then it then you're so you're selling them on the idea that you can land that story and then oftentimes and this happened to me several times the story just doesn't get picked up anywhere. And then you're like, mm-hmm. these people are kind of left in the lurch and I know their life very much mo- moves on, but uh, that's always kind of a tough conversation to have with people. they like, I-, I just can't land the stories. No fault of your own. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry to have wasted your time, but I can't drum up any interest for this. Is that something yeah. you've experienced?
1: Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Don- tons of stories. And then you, you know, you end up having all these conversations with all these different people and it ends up, you know, not going anywhere. And yeah, feels like a waste of their time, but I also yeah. think that, um, you know, uh, on the other hand, there is, I know that like, we're all very busy and our time is very valuable. On the other hand, there is also something really, really cool and special about like connecting with someone who's like deeply interested in your work. Um, and so in that sense, like I do try to um you know work or life so i try to like be really well versed in what it is that i'm going to approach someone about before approaching them so that i can have what can be also a meaningful conversation with them um you know so that it that it becomes hopefully the case that the conversation in and of itself has value uh aside from its like potential to go somewhere or potential to, to bloom into something bigger um and so that's like, that's what I tell myself. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, because like we have to have justifications for like, we have to have those conversations and, and that's part of the work. And, um, and it is crummy, but I also think that like there is, it is not, I don't think that the relationship is, is purely transactional. Like it can't be purely transactional because there's no way that as a journalist, you're going to deliver exactly what a source wants you to. And in some cases, you're going to deliver something that they're not going to be happy with, and so seeing it, you know, approaching it as a transactional relationship is just not going to work. And so I think that that if anything, it provides an opportunity to already have that conversation from the conversation from the very beginning, where you say to someone like, "Look, this may or may not go somewhere, but I'm really interested in in, in you know this aspect of your life or this part of your work, or um, you know, in some cases, if you're if you're talking to people." Who have gone through something really traumatic? It can also be a really, you know, useful way for them to to talk through what they've experienced. Um, and I and I don't think that that can be like the value of that alone can be discounted either.
0: Right. Yeah. And and also in the reading or the reading of your Adivis piece, like I can tell there there are some very voicey components too that I really appreciated and um especially at the like the very start high, high up in the story with like gustav you like you know you know he he loved women he loved smoking you know stuff like that it was like i thought it was like a really fun injection of um uh, voicey components and so for for you like uh you know how do you ari- how did you arrive at something like that for you and maybe what were those maybe some voicey inspirations for you that uh, that are always kind of on your shoulder
1: yeah, I do um, I do really want and try to write pieces where the writing in itself is um, compelling. You know, aside from the story or the revelatory aspects of the reporting, that the writing in and of itself, just the prose, is also a pleasure. To consume now, like that's a really tall order. <laughs> oftentimes, um, you know, especially you know, with a story like this that has so many like te- technical aspects. Um, but I I think that you know it's one of the only ways to get through really you know dense material is also to to present it in a way that that feels feel feels fun to read, and uh, and it's certainly the case that the people. I most admire the writers I most admire came from that, you know, came from that place as well. Specifically, you know, I think about, well, I always think about Matthew Power and, and, um, and the work that he did. I think that he is, you know, one of the most uh, talented or was one of the most talented journalists um, working in kind of the contemporary space. And I think that, you know, Michael Paternity does this really well, Susan Orlean. Um, but I would say that, you know, oftentimes what these writers do, uh, you know, uh, uh, John Jeremiah Sullivan also is, you know, come from a place of, of where they, you know, really recognize their own role in the story and their, like their subjective outlook on what they're seeing. Um, and so I think that, that, that is, um, that can be a place where, you know, where writing can can happen is is that is kind of this this like space between what the writer is taking in as they're doing their reporting and, and um, you know, what what they're what they're observing and what they're thinking about it. So, yeah, so I do I do think that that, um, you know having a voice is, is one of the great joys of being able to do journalism, being able to do magazine journalism specifically. Um, and, uh, and, and it's one of the things that makes magazine journalism so special.
0: And a moment ago, you mentioned the kind of the revelatory nature of the information you're able to kind of dole out through, throughout this piece. And it's like, as you get that information, sometimes it can be the tendency is you kind of write the story in the order you report it. And, um, which can be the case with day-to-day stuff. But things, I guess, when you have the time to synthesize it, you can be like, okay, we can, I have all this information, but at this point in the, in the story, you know, character A doesn't know this yet. And so you have to kind of really let it iron out and play out. So what was the challenge like for you as you look to just sort of uh, withhold information long enough just to keep the tension uh, tension going?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was the tricky thing. And that was one of the, the kind of mind game aspects of reporting the story. These guys are are exceptionally good at talking to people. <laughs> and they are very, very smart. And they are, you know, and they have their agendas. And so it, it wasn't. I never just got the story from either one of them or any of the other people I talked to. It was also doled out in, in ways that were incredibly complicated. So to me, what was important in writing the story was identifying these kind of crucial plot points, um, like these turning points where something that in most likelihood the other you know main character did not know about suddenly being, became clear to them. And in some instances, there's some foreshadowing of um, you know, we understand what's happening before one of the characters does. Um, and I think that's just kind of natural to to building narrative tension is <laughs> like one person knows that something is happening and the other person is in the dark. And, and you're kind of reading with this like hope of like, when are they going to find out about this? So that was, you know, that was, you know, one of the ways that, that to like build towards these different points. I would say that there were probably like, three or four points like that during the story, these kind of like, you know, pivotal moments or conversations where, where the depth of the deception becomes clearer, like in, in these like dribs and drabs. Um, and as a reader, you either understand that or you have an inkling of it before it happens.
0: Very nice. Well, I want to be mindful of your time, Jessica. This, you know, this piece was uh, was a, a ton of fun to read, and it was really great to kind of unpack it a lot with you. And uh, you know, as I bring these conversations down for a landing, I always love asking the guests for a recommendation of any kind for the listeners, just like anything you could be uh, excited about. Uh, and uh, so I'd extend that to you if there's something that uh, has uh, bringing you joy in your life, or something that you might want to share with the people out there.
1: Yeah, there's this new magazine that I've been reading a lot called The Dial um, that's uh, being um, edited out of Paris and it has this um, like a very global outlook, but draws in these incredible voices from all of these different corners of the globe. And I would definitely it's, it's a magazine that I turn to often and and find myself reading things that I never would have expected um and perspectives that that are you know totally new to me and and new ideas and so i would definitely give a shout out to them and, and the work that they're doing
0: fantastic the dial i like it awesome well, well jessica thank you so much for carving out some time to talk shop and this this was wonderful and so uh continued success and i can't wait for people to celebrate this amazing story you've done with the atavis so uh thanks for the time and uh best of luck going forward
1: right on well thank you so much brennan thanks for having me on
0: Oh, isn't that nice? Thanks to Jonah and Jessica. And also thanks to the Power of Narrative Conference for promotional support. That's really cool. Go to combeyond.bu.edu and use Narrative 25 at checkout for 25% off enrollment. That'll buy you a lot of burritos. What should we riff about here in the parting shot? I, I really don't have much to say. Nothing really. My attention has been... All over the place. I've been struggling this to, to, to sleep. I can't seem to stop eating. I'm stuttering. I'm waiting on book edits. And you know, here's something. That moment you hit send on an essay or a query is that real magical moment. It lasts about 30 seconds, so you really have to revel in it while it's there, not let it get away. Uh, in that moment, you've brought whatever you're working on to the best it'll be. There's even a moment when you entertain the idea that your editor will look at it and love it. Will barely have anything bad to say. Well, let's just say constructive criticism. Mm-hmm. You imagine them reading it and being unable to stop. They say it'll take 2 to 3 weeks to read and they're done in a week and they're like, "I don't have, I don't have much to say. You have a winner here." The reality is they're pulling their hair out because you're writing the same stupid thing all over again. You're trying too hard here. I don't know. I'm projecting. I I remember when I submitted a book for review, and I thought I was on the five-yard line. First and goal. Let's punch this in. Tush, push, man. Turns out I was pinned up against my own five-yard line. 95 yards to go. Good luck, B.O. That was... Humbling. That was the reality. That is the reality. But man, those 30 seconds when you hit send, few things are sweeter, dude. Few things are sweeter, man. So stay wild, CNFers. And if you can't do interview, see ya.